Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Morning, guys. All right, grab your Bibles, turn them to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. We've got some hardbacks. We've got some some softbacks back there. That is our gift to you. So we want to make sure that we got God's Word in your hand. As you turn there, let me review from last Sunday. We, uh, We looked at the infinite authority of Jesus. And we saw how these religious leaders, a group called the Sanhedrin, they walked up to Jesus as he was teaching in the temple, and they demanded to know where he got his authority. They started to ask him questions. They started to interrogate him. And then Jesus came back with a question of his own. And it seemed like a random question. But what what we learned here really is a seemingly random question from Jesus to the religious leaders was not accidental at all. It really dealt with the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that this Jesus, who was born in this no-name place called Nazareth, he was indeed, and he is indeed, God wrapped up in human flesh. And because Jesus is God, specifically Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Um, He has power in himself. He has authority, um, this exousia that we talked about last week, and his power comes from God the Father. A couple key points from last week, we talked about how without people exercising authority and submitting to authority at the same time, there will always be chaos. We also discussed how life is much simpler when you stay in your own lane. In other words, life is much, it's much less drama-free when you stop asserting your authority where you have none, right? So that sets us up for today. Today really is, is part two of this conversation with the Sanhedrin on the subject of authority. Um, we saw Jesus silence and embarrass the Pharisees, the scribes, with this question. The question dealt with John the baptizer's baptism. Um, Jesus finds himself in a teachable moment today. So he presses into the subject of authority with a parable. And Jesus' parabolic teachings, it it does one of two things. It's either going to instruct us or it's going to harden us. It's going to harden our hearts. And that's what it does with today's crowd, with the crowd that was listening in the first century. Well, which one is it? Let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 and following. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and he went away. 
At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, and some they beat, and, and others they killed. And he still had one to send, a beloved son. And finally, he, he said to them, saying, well, they're going to they're gonna respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, hey, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. Father in heaven, we come here before you this day as a church gathered, a place where we, we honor you, we revere you, and we want to learn about you, Lord Jesus. And today is, is part two of, of your infinite authority. And today you're going to show us that your authority, your patience, it doesn't last forever. There is a deadline to this. So, Lord, teach us. Meet us where we are today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. So, a parable, that is a fictional story that has a spiritual reality. So, he speaks to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. He dug out a pit for a wine press, and then he built a watchtower, and then he leased it to the tenant farmers, and then he went away. So as Jesus begins telling the story, everybody listening understood this parable, because the vineyard is a national symbol for Israel. In fact, the temple where Jesus is, is teaching, it had a beautiful grapevine, and it was sculpted right into the rock, and it led from the porch that leads into the holy place. Its branches and leaves were made of pure gold. Uh, the fruit hanging from the branches consisted of expensive jewels. So all that to say, a vine and a vineyard had a sacred meaning to the Jewish people. So let's take a look at this, this parable itself. A man planted a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He dug out a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. So this unnamed man, this is God the Father. Notice the great pains that God took to plant this vineyard. Uh, to plant a vineyard in Israel means you got to remove all the rocks from the land. Now, we live in Arizona, so, and, and we think we have rocks. Well, Israel even more so. So what a vineyard owner would do, he would take these rocks and he would use them to build the fence around the property. Um, this would keep the animals out. This would keep the thieves out. He would also take these rocks to build the watchtower itself. 
Um, the watchtower could be 15 to 20 feet high. This was a place for shelter. It was a place for storage. But most of all, it was for protection. It was really a lookout center so that he could protect his property and he would protect it with a sling. The vineyard owner, he would then dig a pit for the wine press. This, this pit or this vat is what it's called. It, it was made out of solid rock. So as you can imagine, building a vineyard takes a tremendous amount of time, effort, and hard work. And it's the same kind of care and compassion uh, and work that we see spiritually here with God the Father. The second reason the Jews could identify with this parable is that this story, it reflects Old Testament imagery from the prophet Isaiah. So let's learn some Old Testament today. Let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1. This was written five to seven hundred years before Jesus was even born. I will sing about the one that I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one that I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones. He planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug a wine press there. And he expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So not only do we know that the man in Jesus' parable, that is God the Father, we learn here from Isaiah that the vineyard represents all of Israel. So moving on to verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. So this is a prevalent practice in Israel. Whenever the, the landowner would basically lease the land, he would have farmers take care of it. The owner would generally get one-third to one-half of, of all the produce. Obviously, the, the landowner went to great expense to build the vineyard. This is his business. And that justifies the, his expectation to, to share in the profit here. Now, harvest time for a new vineyard, it takes about five years. Let me show you this. We, we learned that in the Old Testament as well in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 23. When you come into the land and you plant any kind of tree for food, you are to consider that fruit forbidden. It will be forbidden for you for three years it is not to be eaten. In the fourth year, all of its fruit, it is to be consecrated as a praise offering to God. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. And in this way, its yield will increase for you. So it takes five years for a new vineyard to produce fruit. So it would be easy for these hired farmers after five years of working this land and seeing nothing all of a sudden, it starts to produce fruit. They don't, they don't want to give any of that fruit away. They think it's theirs. Now, keep in mind, this is a parable. So Jesus is also talking about the spiritual fruit that comes from Israel's spiritual leadership. So back to verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit. So in other words, God the Father, he sent a prophet to the religious leaders of Israel he wants to see how they're doing, how they're leading, how they're providing spiritually and taking care of God's prized possession, which is the nation of Israel. Verse 3, what did they do? They took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. So instead of the prophet receiving fruit from the religious leaders, he received a beating. 
This is a severe beating. The picture here is that they, they removed the skin off this guy's face. This would have shocked the crowd. I mean, talk about wicked, outrageous behavior of the farmers, a.k.a. the spiritual religious leaders of Israel. Verse 4, again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. In other words, these farmers, they bashed the servant's head in. Spiritually, these religious leaders did the same thing to the Old Testament prophets. Verse 5, then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, and some they beat, and, and others they killed. Now, let's just pause, because at this point, what are you thinking? Well, well, yeah, I don't want to be a farmer either. I, I surely don't want to be that guy's farmer. What's this guy thinking? He keeps sending people. I mean, nobody in their right mind is going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over to these wicked, wicked men, expecting a different result. I mean, guys, that's the, that's the definition of insanity. But at this point, the crowd, they would have expected the landowner to do something drastic. They, they would expect him to take an army with him to execute justice on these wicked farmers. Is that what he does? Verse 6, he still had one to send, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, well, they're going to respect my son. They're going to respect him. Now, can you just hear the audible gasp from the crowd? People start to discuss this among them. Crowds, they grumble, they murmur. I mean, th this is just downright foolish. This landowner, God the Father, he's going to send his own son knowing that they're going to kill him? This is crazy. Why would he do that? Well, in Israeli culture, the son represents the father. So the sending of the son, it shows, number one, the seriousness of the situation. But number two, the son has the authority. He, he carries all the rights that the father has. Now, as a side note here, it is pretty remarkable how Jesus inserts himself into this parable in this verse. So how do these farmers, how do they respond to the landowner's son? Spiritually, we would say, how do the religious leaders respond to God's own son? Verse 7 but those farmers, they said to one another, hey, 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 this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And you know what, guys? The inheritance is going to be ours. Now, at first glance, this whole story seems crazy. This is absolutely ridiculous. Do these farmers actually think that they're going to get away with all this? All the beatings and all the murder. According to traditional law, the land that remains unclaimed for three years would become the property of those working it. So in their wicked pea-sized brain, they reason this whole thing out, believing that this land, this land that they did not purchase, this vineyard that they did not plant, the fence and the watchtower and the wine press that they did not build, it could all be theirs. If they killed that beloved son. I wonder if anybody in the crowd at that point listening would have remembered 
how God the Father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism when he said, you are my beloved son. I mean, surely it had to cross the, uh, the wicked farmer's minds that these guys, are, they're not going to get away with this. But isn't that Jesus' point here? We got the Jewish leaders, we got the Jewish people. Really, guys, we're talking about all of us because we're all sinners. And, and we think that we can get away with living our lives in direct rebellion of a holy God and never receive any kind of punishment. We tend to think, like these farmers did in this parable, you know what? God's weak. If I haven't been punished yet, and I did that thing 20 years ago, I'm, I'm not going to be punished. It's not logical, but you know what? Sin is, is never logical. Key point number one, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. I know I've used that key point before, but I, I probably can use it in every sermon. Dear friends, please don't replace God's patience with his weakness. Don't replace God's patience with weakness because God is not weak. God is far from weak. He is unbelievably patient. He is long-suffering. Jesus is revealing the deep mercies of God the Father in this parable and what looks like foolishness to us. Oh, dear friends, it reflects the love and the wisdom of God himself because God's ways are so much higher. They are so much better than our human ways. Verse 8, so they seized him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So this is remarkable. Jesus now moves this parable from the history of Israel to the prophecy of Israel. In this parable, throwing the son's body out of the vineyard, it was the final act of rebellion. I mean, they didn't even bury the body. And refusing to bury a corpse was a ghastly offense in the first century. And guess what? This is Wednesday of Passion Week. Friday morning, two days from now, the religious leaders, they're going to seize Jesus, they're going to abuse Jesus, and they're going to kill Jesus, and they're going to throw him out of the city and murder him outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Wow. Verse 9. What then? This is, a, this is the question from Jesus. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, he will kill those farmers, and he will give the vineyard to others. So verse 9 is the climax of this parable. Jesus has the, the crowd hooked here. You know, they are hanging on every single word. So, so what happens, picture people start starting to answer Jesus out loud when he asks this question. What then will the owner of this vineyard do? Matthew's gospel says this. He will completely destroy those terrible men. People are now shouting this answer. So in other words, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And it's in that moment to where all of a sudden, ding, the light bulb goes on for the crowd. And they go, uh-oh, oh, no, 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 oh, no. Luke's gospel says this, but when they heard it, they said, well, th that must never happen. See, they just realized that they condemned themselves. 
They sentence themselves as guilty. They are the ones to blame. They are the ones who mistreated, who abused, and who killed all the Old Testament prophets. They are guilty of sawing Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. They are guilty of constantly mistreating Jeremiah. They accused him of treason. They they threw him in a pit. And according to tradition, they stoned him to death. Ezekiel faced hatred and hostility. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was rejected. Micaiah was beat in the face. And then recently, John the baptizer, he got his head cut off. So, the, so you can see the, the crowd starts to backpedal here, right? But see, it's way too late. Jesus has already judged them. And in fact, they've judged themselves. And this parable, it becomes prophetic with the destruction of the temple 40 years later. Jesus was revealing to them in great detail here that he would destroy the temple, which, which is the very heart of the sacrificial system. Now, why is he going to do that? He destroys the temple because he himself is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is going to destroy the priesthood. He's going to destroy the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, all of it. It's all going away. And then after that, he's going to give that vineyard to the Gentiles. So what Jesus is doing here is he's transferring the leadership from the temple to the apostles. We're going from the 12 tribes to the 12 apostles. Back to verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? So it's like Jesus repeats the question. The farmers, they're betting, you know, that he's not going to do anything because he hasn't done anything up to this point. But keep in mind, this is a parable. This story is an allegory of the infinite authority of Jesus, and now it's being unleashed. So key point number two, even though God has shown outrageous patience, his patience is not unlimited. Even though God has shown outrageous patience with mankind, His patience is not unlimited. God's not going to be patient forever. There is a deadline, literally. You know, verse 9 of this parable, it shows a change in the tone of the story here. The landowner who at first seems to be powerless, he now releases his wrath. He not only kills the farmers, but then he gives the vineyard to other people. And one of the biggest mistakes that I think we make today is thinking that this is is my vineyard. So in other words, my vineyard, this is my home. This is my marriage. These are my kids. These are my grandkids. This is my business. This is my education. This is my money. This is my church. Well, dear friends, none of that is a human possession. All those things are God's possessions, and by God's grace, we get to steward all of those things. Verse 10, Jesus says, hey guys, haven't you ever read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. So Jesus ends this parable with Psalm 118. 
This is the same psalm that the crowd celebrated on Palm Sunday. It's interesting here because Jesus turned Psalm 118 verse 23 into a question. It's a great question. This came, all of this is coming about from the Lord. Is it wonderful in your eyes? The psalm explains that the one who is rejected, the one who is murdered, he will be vindicated. The block of stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone of a new structure, and the image is Jesus himself. So what's the result of this parable, of this conversation? Verse 12, so they, that's the religious leaders, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd. They're always scared of the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So the leaders of the nation, they hear the truth, they walk away from the truth once again. Time and time again, they're walking away from the truth. So it's just a good thing that we're Americans and we don't have a problem with rebellion. (laughs) History has shown us time and time again, guys, what happens when a nation doesn't repent. Just a few months ago, a U.S. congressman told another congressman, and I quote, God's will is no concern of this Congress. Dear friends, can a nation continue to make a mockery out of God's will without repentance and not suffer any consequences? Can we? Look in your rearview mirror over the past year. For the first time in history, the world experienced a a global shutdown with this thing called COVID. This thing that we can't even see shut the whole world down. Is that a coincidence? We've got fires raging in our backyards. We've We've got flooding in other parts of the country. We've got large quantities of animals dying for no reason, buildings falling down randomly. And all these things are tragic, but is it a coincidence? It's not a coincidence, guys, if if you're reading your Bible. Is it possible that we are all living on borrowed time? Now, I'm not going to say because I don't know, but I do know this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, the day of the Lord will come just like, just like a thief in the night. I do know this, Matthew 25, 13, be alert. In other words, wake up. You don't know the, either the day or the hour as well. Are you ready for that day, for that hour? To see Jesus face to face, this guy that we talk about every Sunday, week in, week out, are you ready to see him face to face on that glorious day? Guys, if you got questions about the gospel, about Jesus, uh, about the church, if you need prayer, there's a prayer room through the foyer and to the right, and, and we'll be in there after the service. We want to answer those questions and we want to pray for you.